Welcome to Petite Sounds, a podcast about language, parenting, and children. I'm Hector, and I'm Elaine. This is episode eight. This episode will be so much fun. I bet it will. Today we'll talk about music and language, my favorite topics. As you might remember, in episode two, we learned that a fetus can discriminate between different tones in the last trimester of pregnancy. That means they can tell that a C and a C sharp have different qualities. But in this episode, we'll explore in more depth some of the features that music and language share. We'll learn a little more about some similarities in how babies process both, and also about how language influences music. And of course. This episode would not be complete without a few strategies that can help you incorporate music to support your children's bilingual efforts, and maybe even for yourself. So tag along and learn more about how music and language mingle with one another. Are we ready? Prestissimo. Musica maestro. I have to admit that the fact that different music tones can be perceived in the womb during pregnancy is still something I find quite difficult to wrap my head around. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Although, if we see it from a worldwide perspective, it isn't that surprising. That's true. Around ninety percent of the world's languages are tonal. That means that these languages, unlike English, Spanish, or German, use tone patterns to distinguish words and inflections. Mandarin, Cantonese, and Thai are some examples of these languages. In reality, all languages use tone to express different aspects of language. For example, tone may vary when we ask questions, to express certainty or uncertainty. But it is in tonal languages where the meaning of a word is determined by the contour of the intonation. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. In Mandarin, for example, the words "mother," "hemp," "horse," and "scold" vary only in the intonation of the vowel sound "a."、Uh. In this example, the meaning of the word would depend on whether you pronounce it flat, ma, with a rising tone, ma, falling and rising, ma, or only falling, ma. I find it really interesting that speakers of tonal languages are more likely to develop absolute or perfect pitch than speakers of non-tonal languages. People with absolute pitch can tell what notes compose each piece of music without any other reference. Some popular examples of people with perfect pitch are Jacob Collier, Charlie Puth, and Dylan Biedo. Rick Beato's son, Rick, by the way, is one of the most popular music educators on YouTube right now. In one of his many videos, he states that there is a window in which children can develop absolute pitch, and data collected from a study conducted at the University of California actually suggests that that's indeed the case. But Rick Beato and other experts also state that this should not be confused. With the ability to develop relative pitch, which means that you are able to identify the notes of a piece of music given a reference tone. 
So you can learn to identify that this note is a D in contrast to the previous notes C and a C sharp. But someone with perfect pitch doesn't need that reference. They hear this note and know it's a D sharp. Interestingly, evidence suggests that as you age, you can also lose your absolute pitch. So back to our world of language. The critical period hypothesis around the development of absolute pitch sounds very similar to another widely debated hypothesis in language development called the critical period hypothesis. The critical period hypothesis generated a lot of interest at the end of the 1960s. One of the most influential proponents of this hypothesis was Eric Lenenberg. In a nutshell, the idea is that between the ages of two and three years, language merges as a natural phenomenon and just as a mere product of maturation and self-programmed learning. He is also at least partially responsible for the popularization of this theory in second language acquisition. In one of his publications, he stated that, quote, between the ages of three and the early teens, the possibility for primary language acquisition continues to be good. After puberty, the ability for self-organization and adjustment to the physiological demands of verbal behavior quickly declines. The brain behaves as if it had become set in its ways and primary basic skills, not acquired by that time, usually remain deficient for life. End of quote. Ouch. That sounds harsh. But is it true? Well, we know now that he was wrong about almost everything. Language development starts way before birth, not at two. And specialization towards a language or languages in their closest environment starts to settle around five years of age. On the other hand, languages can be learned at any stage of our life. Whether you are a kid, a teenager, a grown adult, or a senior. And you can really reach a very high degree of proficiency. And even if you only speak one language, you can increase your vocabulary and learn more words in your native language as you grow older. And the same happens with music. You can also develop and improve your musicality. That's actually true. I've never considered myself the most musical person, but Hector has been teaching me how to play the bass, and I've noticed that my musicality is improving. If you look at it closely, language and music share certain features. As we have learned in previous episodes, one of the key components of pronunciation is rhythm. If you're not too familiar with the concept of rhythm in music, we could reduce it to the beat. Imagine your favorite song. Hmm, my favorite song. That's a hard one. Um, let's say it's Changes by David Bowie. So this song has something that makes you tap your foot or clap. If you were to time that with a metronome, it would sound like this. Even if you're not very musical, you can feel it. Musicians love to play around with your expectations of that inner beat to move your emotions through sound. And rhythm and language is also noticeable, even if you're not a linguist. There's a cadence in the way we speak. 
In our case, German and Spanish have different rhythms. German is a stressed time language, and Spanish is a syllable time language. One of the most recognizable characteristics of stressed time languages is that there are certain vowels that are shortened. This is also true for English, and even clearer when you speak a foreign accent. For example, if I were to speak with a very stereotypical Spanish accent, you can notice that my vowel range is smaller, and also that my rhythm is more stable, especially when going from one syllable to another. Notice what happens in English with a more general American pronunciation. You notice that there are certain sounds that are reduced, especially when you listen to them in a conversation. You mean not as isolated words? Yeah. For example, if I say, "I'm gonna visit my mom next week," you can notice that there is a contraction in the "gonna." That, for us as foreign speakers of English, is one of the most notorious characteristics of some variations of English. But maybe for me, it is less than it is for you because we also have this in German. Yes, absolutely. And as we know, these patterns are one of the very first things babies start mapping. They use this information to then decode other components of language. They start identifying certain syllables that are emphasized through different prosodic cues. These cues are a. Amplitude, how loud a syllable is pronounced. B. Duration, how long it is. And an increase in pitch. So, especially when we see language in its natural context, we can see how people use these cues also to provide additional context to the words. If I say "careful," it conveys a different meaning than if I say "careful." And when we read aloud in spoken word or poetry, you can see the natural musicality of words. The changes in pitch go up and down, creating a mesmerizing melody. So the pace of all these prosodic components is what creates this linguistic rhythm that we were talking about. These ups and downs in pitch create contours in the same way that music phrases do. For example, if you are speaking and you're not finished, you tend to go up with your pitch, make a brief pause, or prolong a syllable. Whereas when you have completed your argument, you tend to go down. Here it is important to mention that the way parents speak to their children is different to how they speak to the rest of society. They use what linguists call motherese, parentese. Baby talk or infant-directed speech, and the contours here are sometimes more exaggerated and slower. This allows children to map out when one word or sentence starts more easily. What I find particularly interesting is how these contours and rhythmic patterns of language can be reflected in music. There is a very interesting video. Link in the description by bass player and YouTuber Adam Neely, where he explains a rhythmic figure very popular in music nowadays, 
called Scotch Snaps. That goes like this. And that you can find in basically every modern song. And he explains how this rhythmic figure comes very useful when making music in English. And he compares it to the dembo beat. That is more typical of Latin trap and reggaeton music, which is in Spanish and in a certain way suits Spanish language, especially Spanish from the Caribbean. That's why if Justin Bieber and The Weeknd want to sing reggaeton, they have to do it in Spanish. Despacito. If you would like to learn even more about this topic, we recommend you to read Music, Language and the Brain by Anirudh Patel. Dr. Patel digs deep into other aspects of language that we won't discuss in this episode. But if you're interested, it won't be a waste of time. We can guarantee that. Another great recommendation to learn more about the relationship between language and music is A Generative Theory of Tonal Music by Fred Lerdahl and Ray Jackendorf. Ray Jackendorf is one of the most renowned linguists in the world who also happens to be a very talented musician. Now, one of the cool things about music is that you don't really need to understand everything. The melodies are composed of the same 12 notes. But music is also very helpful to get familiar with the rhythm, sound, intonation, and all the cultural baggage that you can find in songs. In her review article, The Potential Role of Music and Second Language Learning, Yeva Seromskite collects literature from different studies. These studies support that musical training and aptitude, as well as the result in musical expertise, can have a positive effect when learning a second language, particularly in areas like reading acquisition and phonological awareness of timing and pitch of the language in question. So... In the end, language and music do have some connection with one another. Music can indeed be a powerful tool that can complement the development not only of bilingualism, but also multilingualism at home and at school. Seromskite's argument is very powerful, and this is because music training can facilitate both the tonal and the timing aspects of the sound system of a language. But these sound systems are not absolutely isolated and exclusive. Sometimes sound systems from different languages share some elements. For example, if you learn the R in French as in rose, you also have the German And this can even extend to tonal languages like Mandarin or Thai. So, whether it is Gangnam Style in Korean, La Vie en Rose in French, or La Vida Loca in Spanish, or in English, enjoy the beauty of music with your kid in all languages. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to send your comments and questions on Twitter and Instagram at Petit Sounds. Tell us what songs your little one likes and how you share music with them. Leave a voice message or write a review on our website, petitsounds.com. 
You can also get in touch with us if you would like to be a guest in our podcast. And click on the follow button and don't miss a single episode. In our following episode, we'll talk about trilingualism. Talk to you in the next episode. Ciao. Tschüss.